You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be talking about the case of a young man named Patrick Carver, who was found brutally beaten to death in his own Texas home. Sadly, the case was mishandled by the detective in charge, and before long, Patrick's own father would be named the suspect in the case. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Narelle Peterson. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Patrick Russell Carver was born on September 17, 1991, in Houston, Texas, to Russell and Kim Carver. He had an older brother, Donnie, and a younger sister named Ann. Growing up, Patrick enjoyed playing football and was known as a goofball and for always smiling. 
Patrick's sister Anne has spoken about how she remembers being called into the principal's office at school, where she saw her aunt, who delivered the terrible news that her brother was dead. That was 11 years ago, and Patrick's family still doesn't know who beat him to death, but they feel and hope that there's someone out there that knows something. Shortly before Patrick was killed, his family dealt with a lot of strife, and the relationship between Russell and Kim Carver ended. The family was splintered, and Patrick and his dad, Rusty, tried to keep their family home by working together to pay the bills. But financial hardships made that impossible, leading to the power of the home being shut off. Rusty realized that keeping their home was a lost cause, and he left. But Patrick remained behind thinking of some way to stay in the home, some way to pay the bills. Just before 11 a.m. on September 1st, 2010, Rusty Carver went to the family's Houston home to see how Patrick was doing, and he noticed some odd things laying in the yard, things that seemed out of place. They included a circuit board of some kind connected to a long piece of wire. Rusty made his way to the front door and then opened it, and he saw his 18-year-old son Patrick lying on the tile floor just four feet from the door. Because of the large amount of blood surrounding Patrick's head, Rusty knew immediately that his son was dead. Rusty called police from inside the home, then stepped outside to await the arrival of police and medical personnel. Patrick was pronounced dead at the scene. It was quickly apparent that he had been beaten to death with a blunt object. He had been killed just inside the doorway of his own home. There were no signs of a break-in, no forced entry, no broken windows, and the door was unlocked when Rusty opened it. Sergeant Ryan Chandler walked through the home with Rusty as he searched around taking an inventory of things that may have been missing to see if Patrick had been murdered during some sort of interrupted burglary. And the house had definitely been ransacked. Computers were missing, and audio speakers were gone. Police found a footprint in Patrick's blood. They checked Rusty's shoes to see if they were a match for the print. They weren't. After detectives left, Rusty noticed that there was still a bag full of things laying out in the open, and he realized that this was a bag of stuff that had been taken out of his closet, and whoever had robbed the home and killed Patrick had forgotten to carry the bag outside of the house. Rusty didn't touch anything inside the bag, he just zipped it up, and he found it odd that police didn't take it. He tried to call them and have someone pick up the bag, hoping that there might be usable fingerprints or maybe even DNA on the bag, but the police didn't get back to him, it seemed as if they weren't interested. Rusty finally put the bag in his trunk, trying not to touch any of the contents inside, and then drove it to the Houston Police Department, where they finally ended up taking possession of the bag. But that was the last time Rusty heard about the bag. As I mentioned, Patrick's parents had recently divorced, and it was a tough time for him. Rusty doesn't recall any animosity about the situation from his son Patrick, but other people remember that Patrick was upset. They noticed differences in him. He stopped going to church started ditching school, and started partying. Some people felt that Patrick was angry towards his father, blaming him for the breakup. Patrick resorted to trying to sell drugs to make money, in a desperate attempt to pay the bills and keep the house. But in the aftermath of Patrick's murder, police never seemed to focus on the people that would have reason to be looking for something in the house, such as money or valuables, or perhaps someone looking for drugs. Sergeant Ryan Chandler, who was in charge of Patrick's investigation early on, was the subject of an internal police investigation. Disciplinary records show that he mishandled 20 homicide cases between 2000 and 2013 when he transferred out of the homicide division. Chandler would often simply not do any legwork on a case. The chief of the Houston Police Department, Charles McClellan, wrote a 12-page report regarding Chandler's below-par performance and suspended him indefinitely in 2014 
In January 2015, the Houston Police Department was informed that they had just cause to fire Sergeant Chandler, and they did just that. Detectives were reassigned to each of the 20 cases that Chandler was found to have mishandled. As of 2018, only five of those cases remained open, with the other 15 cases being resolved. One of those five cases that remained unsolved was Patrick's, and unfortunately, a lot of valuable time was lost in not properly investigating it. The new sergeant assigned to Patrick's murder investigation, Phil Walters, apparently settled on one suspect, Patrick's own father, Rusty Carver, despite Rusty's shoes not matching the print found at the crime scene. According to Waters, Rusty resented Patrick for staying in the house when he couldn't, and it led to him beating his son Patrick to death with a motorcycle helmet, something that Rusty vehemently denies. In 2016, Patrick's murder investigation was completed, with the case sent to the Harris County District Attorney's Office. Rusty was still listed as the main suspect in the case, but prosecutors have not presented the case to a grand jury, and no charges have been filed. Recently, Rusty joined WebSleuths.com as a verified member and made the following post there. Not only did I lose my baby boy, I lost my family as well. It's not clear how the rest of Patrick's family feels about Rusty possibly being involved in his son's murder, but it must be a terrible thing for them to have to consider. If Rusty's telling the truth, and if Sergeant Waters had it wrong, that means that whoever killed Patrick is still out there and free. Adding to the confusion of the situation, multiple people who had visited Patrick's home had received copies of the keys, and some of them passed them out to other people, so the killer could have almost been anyone. Some of Patrick's friends wonder what kind of monster could have taken Patrick from them, while others wonder if the killer is one of them. September 17, 2021 would have been Patrick's 29th birthday. Patrick's ashes have been riding in an urn in Rusty's Jeep for years. It seems that Rusty just can't bear to scatter them, and he wants to keep his son close. Every day he lives with two unbearable truths. The first, that his son was murdered in cold blood, and the second, that some people believe it was at his hands. If you have any information about the murder of Patrick Russell Carver, please call the Houston Police Department Homicide Division at 713-308-3600, or you can anonymously call Crime Stoppers at 713-222-TIPS. Rusty Carver sat down to talk with me about the hell of losing his son and about how hard it's been to have his own name thrown around as a suspect in the case. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey, everyone. It's hard to believe, but summer's over. Now we're officially in fall, but just because the season's changed doesn't mean that things that have been weighing on us suddenly disappear. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, I'm happy to tell you there's help, and that help is BetterHelp. BetterHelp online counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from anxiety, depression, and grief, to sleep issues, LGBT matters, and family conflicts, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. 
In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a healthier life today. As a listener of the Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. In the small town of Fox Lake, Illinois, Joe Glenowitz was a hometown hero and a 30-year veteran of the local police department. On September 1st, 2015, just one month from retirement, he was found dead outside an abandoned cement plant, shot in the chest twice at close range. While the town and Joe's family mourned his passing, hundreds of police officers launched a manhunt to find his killer. After weeks of searching, the lead investigator discovered chilling secrets about Joe, the local police department, and the village of Fox Lake. Secrets that, once uncovered, would put the town in the national spotlight and haunt them for years to come. Wondery's shocking true crime podcast, Over My Dead Body, is back for a third season with a story about corruption, betrayal, and the secrets of a fallen hero. If you're a true crime mystery fan like I am, then you're going to want to listen to this show because it has some major twists. I don't want to give too much away, but trust me, you'll want to tune in. You can follow Over My Dead Body Season 3, Fox Lake, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Or you can listen early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. With us today is Patrick Russell Carver's dad, Russell Carver, who goes by Rusty. Uh, Rusty, I want to say thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your son Patrick's case with us. You're welcome, sir. Uh, Patrick's case is still unsolved. There are a lot of unanswered questions. There's troubling details. We're going to get into some of that. But before we do dive into the clues uh, surrounding your son's death, and and the aftermath. Can you talk a little bit about his life and, and what kind of person your son was? Yeah, he was a pretty determined young boy. And when he was a baby, he was really a handful sometimes. But uh, he was never really a bad kid. He was pretty loving and pretty sweet most of the time. And uh, Growing up, he experienced a lot of things that his older brother did as well. And one of the things being playing youth football with a, a little league type setup and followed in his brother's footsteps, although five years apart, ended up finishing the youth football all the way to the senior level of that. We used to go out and play a lot. Uh, when he was younger, he was, like I said, just generally a good kid. Uh, never had any real troubles. Might get in trouble with his parents every now and then, myself and, and his mother. But uh, never anything that was deemed outstandingly bad or anything like that. So it sounds like he was a typical kid doing what, what typical kids do, and uh, he was close with his, uh, he, he has two siblings, is that correct? Yes, he had an older brother, five years older, and a younger sister that was five years younger, plus a day. That relationship with, with your family, did that change or evolve over time? Did you stay close, or, or did things change at all for you at, towards the end of, of Patrick's life? I didn't think so, but apparently... His, his some of his peers noticed some stuff that I didn't notice. Uh, 
uh, I have to admit that I wasn't the best boy as they grew up. I was uh, using weed on a regular basis as a form of therapy because I found out later that I have issues, mental issues. And uh, that's when he became, I guess, what they call more edgy when he became a, a teen and older. Some of the people that he hung around with were pretty much the same as him when it came to that type of stuff. Yeah, I think as it's typical with, with many of us as we grow up, we start to change or go with a new group of friends. And, and sometimes that's maybe not always the, the best crowd. But you, I think as parents, we have to sort of let our kids, you know, grow up and, you know, hopefully uh, they make the right decisions. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, we can't control who they wind up uh, associating with. At the time Patrick was killed, what was his living situation? You weren't living together. That's Is that correct? Well, I had only moved out two days before he was murdered. Uh, I We were living in the family home that he grew up in. And uh, I decided that since I wasn't going to be able to find another job, which probably wasn't true at the time, but I didn't know that, that I wasn't going to be able to afford to pay for the house and the insurance and all that stuff and still live there. And he was trying to find work, but he couldn't find anything steady enough to help me with the bills. So I, I had suffered major depression whenever I got laid off from uh, the company that I was working for making about 80 K a year. And so because of that, I was, really negative about a lot of things and he didn't seem any different to me than he had always been other than uh we were both smoking weed and that was pretty normal for me at the time because his friends were also getting high and i had been doing it since i was 15 and i'm now 62 and uh, so it was normal for me, maybe not normal for everybody else, but it was normal for me because it helped me focus on myself, my issues. Sure. And I don't know if it did the same for him or not, because we never really talked about it. The The family home you mentioned, who was all living there at the time? At the, it was just me and him and a couple of his friends would come over and stay for a while and then go back to where they were staying before. But it was it was your intention that the two of you were planning to live there uh, until you were out of work, and then you left, and then uh, Patrick was going to try and figure out a way to come up with the money to keep living there. Yes, yes, that's okay. correct. Just touching on the drug thing, I, we hear drugs and, and we automatically assume the worst of people, but, I mean, we're talking marijuana here, and that's, I mean, you know, the, it, there's a lot of medical benefits to it, and uh, it does help with things like depression. Um, so we're not talking uh, heroin, cocaine, that kind of stuff, correct? No, no, we're not. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, when er, anytime someone brings uh, drugs into the conversation, you know, people always assume it's it's something dangerous. There's drug yeah. dealers involved. There's, you know, cartels involved. We're, we're talking marijuana here, so again, not to get into a whole debate over over the the pros and cons of marijuana, but uh, you know, there's a lot of worse drugs out there that that are centered yes. around crime. So uh, that's correct. Yeah, and so unfortunately, you were the one that 
founder son. Um, yes. Can you walk us through that day, how it unfolded? Well, I got up around 8 a.m., I think, and I was staying in a town closer to Galveston than the house was. And uh, I got up and had a couple of chores I needed to do, and then I was going to go and pick up some stuff from the house because I'd left some stuff there. And uh, so I went and turned in the cable box that I had for Time Warner or Comcast or wherever it was. And that kept me until about nine something doing that. And then I drove over to the house. And when I got there, I was walking towards the door and I saw all kinds of weird things laying in the front yard. Like I found a piece of a BB gun or something. It was just weird laying there in the yard. I didn't know why it was there. I also found a wire with some uh, printed circuit board on it laying up closer to the house. And uh, I walked up to the door and whenever I opened the door, it, it was unlocked. I opened the door and I saw him just inside the doorway laying face down in a pool of his own blood. And when I saw the amount of blood, I knew immediately that he was dead. That, that was beyond hope, but I called 911 immediately. And from I went back outside the house because I didn't want to be in there at that point. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they pronounced him dead at the scene. And then HPD showed up and started their routine. Yeah, that's got to be a, a, a terrible ordeal to find your, your child dead like that. Yes, yeah, I have put it like this. It's like I have a video that goes off in my head that I can't turn away from without some kind of distraction. Uh, it's always there and it's always playing and I can't stop it. <laughs> I just wish I could get rid of that image, but I can't. Yeah. And I, I, I think anyone listening can understand that a, a parent never wants to, wants their child to pass away before them, but especially in such a violent manner, uh, and and then you have to be the one to find him on top of that. That's just got to be something that that most people can't even fathom. I don't think they can. I mean, it's not something that I would wish on another parent in the least. But without having gone through something like that, they can't even they can't even really comprehend how severe and how savage it was to me. You knew in, in your mind, despite being, I assume, in shock and just just being knowing immediately, you said that, that he was gone. You knew enough to sort of get out of the house because you knew that, it, you know, he didn't fall and hit his head or something like that. Something had happened yeah. there and you you've felt the need to get out of the out of the home, out of the crime scene. That's very true. And And when police did show up, you said they came pretty quickly. What unfolded? What did they say? And what did they talk to you about right when they came? Not very much, to be honest. Uh, they At that point, they wouldn't let me go back in the house, and I didn't want to go back in the house. And I just I had to hang around and wait for them to come to me to see what they were going to do next. And one thing they did do is they came outside and wanted to look at my shoes that I was wearing, and they wanted to check the bottoms of them. And, uh, that was because there was a footprint in the pool of blood and they were checking it to see if it was, 
matched to my shoes that I was wearing. I can only assume. Uh, but that was about the extent of it. And then they took me downtown to the main police station so that I could be interviewed, I thought, because they didn't really interview me on the scene. And I was down there for about four or five hours before they asked me to come back. And I had to get my mom to come and get me and take me back to the house. So you're, and, you're trying to process all this, but they have their questions they need to ask, and you were the one that found them, so you, you have to answer to all that. Yes. And, and yes. To touch on that shoe print for a second. Now, you admit you went back in, in the house to get uh, to make the 911 call, and then you left the home. Did you step in the uh, pool of blood, do you know? or No, I did not. Okay. I did not. Um, so the, the shoe print then is presumably from whoever did this to your son. Yes. Uh, all right. So after this initial time, you're, you're shocked. You've got to answer these police questions. Uh, I'm just curious how you even deal with that whole situation, the aftermath of, all right, I've got to shift from taking in that my son's been killed to uh, now I've got to sit down and, and answer police questions. Is it is it hard to even answer questions at that point? Well, again, they didn't ask me that many questions. I was surprised whenever I got back to the house, the detectives on the scene wanted me to walk through the house and tell them if anything was missing. And so I was able to process that in a fairly normal manner because I believe that I was already in a state of PTSD from what I saw that that the stress for that just it didn't let me unfold into an emotional state until my mom and I were headed back to her house and uh, when we started driving up there we both fell apart and both of us started crying but what they did want to know was what I said before was if anything was stolen from the house and the house was in total turmoil. It was, it was things. His bedroom was a, was all disheveled. My bedroom was all disheveled. Uh, there were things missing out of my closet that I knew were in there that I had in a Footlocker type case that were. It, it was empty, and it turned out that that stuff was sitting in a an overnight bag in the middle of the living room that the cops would have tripped over had they looked in it they would have found some evidence but they didn't and i called them to try and get them to come back and get it and they wouldn't they didn't show up so i put it in the back of my car which was i parked at a neighbor's house and was going to come back and open it up for them if they wanted to get the evidence but they never showed up this went on for a week or two before I went north to my mom's house in Conroe. And just to clarify, so this is something that after they finally left the home and the crime scene behind, uh, they they did whatever investigating they needed to do. They left this big bag of stuff there, and you felt it was important, but they sort of just dismissed it. They blew it off. That's correct. And and what kind of things were in that bag? There was a small uh, Casio keyboard. There was a coin collection that my grandmother had given me that was in in a frame uh, a bunch of stuff that they would have had to handle to put in the bag so unless they were totally prepared for what they were doing 
they would have left footprints, I mean, I'm sorry, fingerprints on the items because they would have been handling them. And that's why I figured it was so important that they needed to process it. But they didn't get it until almost a year later because I finally took it down to the police station to give it to them. And the whole time I was there, I was bawling, crying, because it just reminded me of, it reminded me of the whole situation again. Yeah. So it's it's almost like you're reliving the whole thing again. Yes, to some extent I am. And what was their explanation for not collecting that evidence and uh, taking it after, you know, you had to basically bring it to them? What was their reasoning for that? I never received any information from them. That was the biggest problem was my ex-wife never got any information. I never got any information. And Patrick's friends never got any information. We would all call Detective Ryan and ask him for updates. And we would get, I'm sorry, we're working the case. It's still nothing new. And the the whole investigation we're going to talk about, obviously, because there's some, some big problems with it, but... Early on, right after it happened, after you had time to process, okay, my son's gone, did you start thinking about anyone that might have done this? Did he have any problems with anyone? Did he have any enemies that may have had a motive to harm him? Well, I came up with a couple of potential uh, perpetrators initially, but... I was also suffering from paranoia at that time. I was so worried that I was going to be next or my daughter and Marie was going to be next or that my oldest son, Donnie was going to be next. And I don't know why I felt that way, but I really did. And it made it hard for me to do a lot of stuff that I would normally have done. Uh, not trying to steer away from your question. So could you refresh me on the question, please? Sure. Just, um, did you have, did anyone come to mind that you thought might've harmed your son? Uh, you know, once you started thinking about that and saying who could have done this, yeah. they've done this, who came to your uh, mind and why, and, and you don't have to name them, uh, but just why you were suspicious of them. Well, there was a guy that was staying with us for a while that came from Mississippi with me whenever I went back to Mississippi to get my car. Uh, I just, I didn't, I know I got suspicious of him after the fact because of stuff that happened around the house, some things that were going on. Uh, But there was also a supposed friend of Pat's that I just didn't really like him or trust him before this happened because of stuff that he was doing. Apparently they were stealing tires off of trucks and then reselling them on Craigslist. And uh, I didn't know that was going on until somebody came and confronted me about it. And I had to explain to him that this is what was going on, that I didn't didn't know anything about it and that I would stop it immediately because I was not gonna allow it to happen on the property anymore because they were storing them in the garage or the backyard and then listing it on Craigslist to try and sell them. So you you think that person could have had a had a motive? Yeah, I do believe that. Or I did believe that, but now I'm not so sure because after doing my own investigation some three or four years later, I found out some good information that made me believe 
what I think really happened. Uh, and and definitely, I'd I'd like to talk to you about that a little bit more. But before we get to that, obviously, early on, right when it happened, you you the police have to do their job. You put your faith in them to find Patrick's killer, yeah. um, and and let them do their job. But sort of went south. If if you know, and I don't want to express your uh, uh, opinions of it, but from everything I've read, it seems like the investigation went south to the point where they were even suspicious of you and making you sound like you had something to do with it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I want to talk about what happened before it got to that stage. The detective that they gave the investigation to turned out he was negligent on 20 cases in the Houston area that he had them in the trunk of his car and was not working them. My son's was one of those cases. And at some point he uh, became accountable because the television reporter here in the Houston area discovered information about him and brought him up or, or released the information publicly. And uh, they ended up firing him because he was totally negligent. And this is Detective Sergeant Chandler from the Houston Police yes. Department. Yes, okay. that's correct. And then I figured since they were given a new detective the case, that something would come of it. And it turned out, I found out two years later that the whole focus was on me, that he was sure that I did it. He felt that I had a valid reason to murder my son which I didn't understand at all because it made no sense to me because I truly loved my son. I loved all my kids. I still do love them. Even though Patrick's not with us anymore, I love him very much. I think about him every day. Uh, when I found out about the investigation being directed at me, I tried to talk to the new detective, uh, officer waters, I think is his name. And, ended up having a face-to-face -face discussion with him in Conroe at the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office, where he put me through a grueling three-hour ordeal, worse than what you see on TV, and constantly accusing me of killing Patrick, of me taking a motorcycle helmet that I owned and beating him to death with it. And... <sighs> It's just absolute insanity from his perspective to me because there's no way that I could have done that or would have done that. Uh, there's no reason that I would want to do that because he's my son. He's my flesh and blood. Yeah, <laughs> unthinkable. And, and uh, you know, obviously in, in, in a lot of murders, uh, people know or are close to the, their killer – so it makes sense that they would start with you, but then work their way out from there. But it seems like they they hung up on you and didn't work their way out from there. They they focused on you. Well, that's true because the new detective had to solve the case because they were so embarrassed about what happened with Chandler not working the twenty cases. And he, you know, I didn't even know that this was going on until my daughter's boyfriend at the time brought it up to me while we were driving to back to Houston from Conroe. And I was just as surprised as anybody else when, when he said that, I was like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? 
And over time, I gradually found out more and more about what was the status of the case with reference to the to my being the primary suspect. And that just it blows me away that that's the way it is. I understand that it is usually in most cases somebody that they know or somebody that is related to them. But nothing could be farther from the truth with respect to me being the the, the actual perpetrator of this horrendous crime against my son. Uh, there were things that I did notice at the crime scene before I went out the door besides the footprint. I noticed that his arms were back behind his back like somebody had been holding his arms back while somebody else was beating on him from the front, from the front, you know, his, his face. I didn't see any wounds because I didn't move him. I didn't want to remember him the way I might see him. I wanted to remember him the way that I still see him, the way that he is in pictures of his life and things like that because I couldn't tolerate dealing with the potential the way his face might have been. I knew something happened to his head because of where the blood pooled around him, but I didn't know what, and I still don't know for sure. How long did the police suspect you? Did they officially say, okay, we have to move on and look at someone else? Did they officially take you off of their list of suspects? No, not at all. I called the new detective around February of uh, 2006, I think it was, maybe maybe the year after that, and asked him what the status of the case was. And he said, the case is closed. I referred it to the DA, Harris County DA, and the grand jury charging you with murder of your son. And when he told me that, I was like, you can't be serious. You can't be, you have no evidence to prove anything like that. There's no reason why I would do that. What are you saying? Why? And he just said, that's it. It's over. Case closed. And that to me is the most annoying thing that they closed the case without even trying to prove it, without doing anything. Because one of the things I did whenever I was staying in the old neighborhood for a little while was talk to people that were Patrick's peers. All of them were went to school with him. All of them knew him. They may not have hung out with him, but they knew him. They were well aware of who he was and where he lived. And from talking to those people, and uh, uh, I think one of his friends, close friends, it came to light that Patrick may have ventured into getting some drugs fronted to him and that maybe he didn't have the money when the dealer came back and that's what happened. It was a drug deal gone bad. And I kept getting more and more information about this without leading any of the kids along. And they all indicated that that was probably what happened. Now that's purely speculation, but they didn't even, the, the detective never even talked to anybody in the neighborhood because I asked them all and they said, nope, never saw him. 
never spoke to anybody. So why they never started at the house and worked their way out around the neighborhood is beyond me because that's what I would have done if I was a police officer. I would have started at the middle and then tried to get clues from everybody in the neighborhood because somebody may have seen something, but they never, ever did that. And I think a lot of that goes to the fact that it was three years of no investigation and then another three years of an investigation, but it was all centered on me. So that's a lot of lost time when you have the first person not even working the case. And then you have, when they finally start working it, they're focusing on you and, and not looking for anyone else. That's correct. What was their, or, or I don't even know if they would have told you this, but what made them suspect you? What was their, in their minds, your motive to do this? Uh, the detective told me that he thought that I murdered Patrick because I was worried about him possibly being a witness in a, in a, a trial that might have come about me. And I don't know why he would think that because I wasn't afraid of anything that Pat or anybody could say about me to a jury because I don't, you know, if I do something, I take responsibility for it. But if I haven't done something, then I don't take responsibility for it. That's just the way I treat life going forward. I can admit that I've made mistakes in my life and I've always owned up to them. I've never tried to put it off on somebody else or said that it wasn't me if I did it. And so his motive was pretty flimsy to begin with. And I don't know why he thinks that I would get in a fight with my son about him staying at the house while I was gone because in reality, there was nothing that I could do to change Patrick's mind about him staying there. That was where he grew up. He wanted to stay there and he was hoping that a couple of his friends would move in and they could get the rent money to pay for the mortgage and the insurance and stuff. And I just, I just really don't get why uh, Detective Waters focused on me. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but that's what he did. I understand why, but there's more people out there to look at. And I, I talk to a lot of law people that deal with law enforcement and their, their loved ones' cases all around the United States. And for some reason, and I, I don't want to talk bad about law enforcement because I think overall they do good work, but in that area of Texas, I hear time and time again of things being mishandled and things not being done the right way and there being uh, all kinds of issues. So to hear this from you uh, about investigators in that area, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that this that this all happened. Yeah, Houston has a long history of bad or poorly managed uh, police and investigative services and uh, the the uh, ME's office and all of the, pretty much everybody in the chain has a big chink in their armor because of it, because they've, they've mishandled so many different things. And, and if we can, can we back up for a moment? Uh, when you found your son, it was roughly what time? It was about 10 in the morning. Okay. So you had done your running around for the, 
returning the cable stuff, and then you came there, and that's when you found him. Do you know what time his estimated time of death was? How long before you got there had he been killed, do you know? I'm not completely sure, but I think they said it was around 2 in the morning. But you, uh, I'm I'm waiting for somebody to try and get the autopsy from whoever has it in storage, and then they're going to share a copy of it with me if they get it. Now, were you able to provide an alibi for yourself for that time period? I was I was trying to sleep in the bed that I was, uh, the trailer that I was staying in down in Bakelet. That's the biggest alibi I've got. Mm. We're near the house. The person there uh, was able to vouch for, for you and stuff? I don't think they ever asked. Okay. And and how long, how far a distance was that from, from the home? It's about 40 miles. Okay. So you're 40 miles away in another town during the, the time that we think your son was killed. Yes. Yeah. And that would seem to be your, your best hope for finally having them clear your name and then move on to look for other suspects. But that doesn't seem to be happening so far. Yeah, it's not happening so far. The newest update that I've heard is that there's a special prosecutor looking at the case. But I don't know what that means because I haven't spoke to anybody with respect to uh, law enforcement about the case since that last time I talked to Detective Waters. And um, you had mentioned, too, that your your son appeared to have, in your opinion, it looked like perhaps someone had held his arms behind his back and someone else had beat him. They they sort of claimed that you had done it with your motorcycle helmet do you know if that was the murder weapon or were they able to determine what the murder weapon was? I'm going to say probably because that was what Detective Waters was telling me I did whenever he claimed that I beat my son to death. But I don't believe it at all. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what may have happened because I wasn't there. All I can say is I just know that I didn't do it. And I definitely didn't use a motorcycle helmet if that's what happened with the motorcycle helmet. You mentioned earlier that it was uh, 2018, I think you said, when you started really looking at this, you started coming up with some theories and some, some ideas and stuff. What are some of those things that you believe to be true of the case? Well, the strongest one, I believe, is the one that I mentioned earlier about him getting drugs fronted to him and then not having the money when the drug dealer showed up. I know his girlfriend indicated in the interview that she did with Channel 11 in 2006 or 2007, I believe, that Patrick had steered towards a little bit harder drugs. Nothing like uh, heroin or anything like that, but we're talking like ecstasy. And uh, I know that there was a party at Patrick's house or at our house about, I don't know if it was the day before I found him or if it was the day of the the morning that I found him. Uh, There was kids or friends of his that told me that he held a party there and that it was just pretty wild and crazy. Since I wasn't there, I don't know for sure. I can just go based on what other people have told me. And and so... The the rumors, the the things that you've found out, the things that you've heard from different people, um, they seem to to point towards some kind of drug angle. 
I don't know if you've heard a name, uh, but without maybe saying it, is there a person's name that comes up as being involved? Uh, there were these brothers that lived across the ditch from, we were on the end of a street and there was a cross street, almost, you could say, right at our driveway. Cause it was a street that came down and headed into our driveway and the street that you came into the subdivision on dead ended two houses down from our house. And there was a bridge there that you could walk over the ditch to the other side of the other subdivision over there. And the kids told me that there were a pair of brothers that lived in that house right there on the other side of the ditch and that they were drug dealers. And that at some point after Patrick's murder, they disappeared and haven't seen or heard from them in a long time. And, and that's what led me to believe that that's what happened. Because they sort of disappeared after he, he was killed and, and it looks suspicious and that they're possibly uh, someone that, Patrick may have gone to if he was looking to get drugs. Yes. And did you share that with investigators or do they pretty much just brush that off because they're already so focused on you? I didn't have a chance to because the case had already been referenced as closed to me and I didn't know who to call or who to talk to because they were, as far as I was concerned, they were done with trying to figure out what happened to Patrick. And if anything was going to happen with respect to solving the case, it was going to have to be me and whoever else I could get to help me figure it out. And it's been a very slow process until I've turned, uh, found web sleuths on the internet and started talking to people there about what, what I think happened. Websleuths.com is a big online forum where people come together and discuss cases and strategies and uh, details of the case. And you're, you've been in sort of an open book there about your experience and the suspicions of you, and, and you've tried to set the record straight. How has your interaction been with people there on that website? Well, initially, because I didn't know that I had to register as a, uh, as a, uh, person that knows what he's talking about because I'm familiar with the family. Uh, they were deleting my posts and some of them had been very painstakingly put in or typed in from my phone because I didn't have a computer to actually sit down and type it in on. And I got aggravated at first, but then they told me the process to go through so that my post could be re, uh, reinstated. And I finally was able to do that process by sending them copies of my ID and a picture with me and the rest of the family all in the picture. So it's like they wanted, I think they call that a verified family member is, is what yeah, they keep. So, yeah. so once yeah, you verify that, they, they let you post and, and share everything. And then yeah. how, how has that been received? Do a lot of people interact with you? And, and uh, has it been pretty positive? It, it has been so far. I mean, I've had people talk to me and tell me that they understand that it's been rough and hard for me to deal with, but uh, I do my best to deal with it anyway. As, as It's really hard talking about some stuff here now, even, but it's important because we're never going to find out an answer if we don't discuss it. If it gets pushed away, 
then nothing ever happens. There's no resolution, no closure for his family or his friends, and no closure and justice for Patrick. And that's all very important as far as I'm concerned. Sure. Because he deserves that. And I can I can hear in your voice how, how tough this is on you still after all these years. How has the rest of uh, your family and, and his siblings and his mom, how have they all handled all of this in the last 11 years? To be honest, I have no idea about his mom because she and I haven't talked since we got divorced, pretty much. Uh, his brother and sister, I was talking to on a regular basis up until about five years ago whenever I got upset and told them that they were no longer a part of my life. And I regret that so much because now I don't have anybody that I love being, being able to talk to them and relate to them about anything with respect to the family. Uh, I was in a pretty bad state of mind at that point and things got out of hand and I just lashed out at both my son and my daughter. And so now there's a whole lot of distance between us. I've been trying to talk to my daughter because I finally found out some information about where she works and to try and ease things between her and I've been sending her flowers periodically, but she has yet to call me. So I don't know that that's ever going to work. So for me, losing Patrick has caused me to lose everybody. I'm pretty much alone and by myself for the rest of my life. I can't, I can't even imagine what you're going through and how tough this has been. Again, I can just hear in your voice how this is so painful for you. And, you know, I don't know. I I wish I had some magic words to say to, to, to make you feel better. And, uh, you know, the only thing I can say is I hope that you try and stay focused, try and stay positive, and maybe one day uh, news of uh, an arrest or a, a different approach in the case uh, leading to, to answers, maybe that will help unite your, your, your family and you can start healing from there. Um, it, it definitely sounds like it's taken a toll on you all and, and gotten you to a point here where, where, um, it's a very tough for you. Thank you, Mike. You know, I know you're active on web sleuths and people can interact with you on web sleuths, uh, in, in the thread about Patrick's case. Is there any website or social media or Facebook pages or anything for your son's case that people should check out? I have a memorial site that I started about a year after he was murdered. And I have a lot of pictures up there and a couple of songs that he liked and uh, uh, different pages about different stages of his life. And it's, uh, it's virtual memorials at Patrick Russell Carver, virtual memorials.com. I think is what it is, but I, I have a hard time getting it back up sometimes because 
uh, I don't have a hard link to it on my phone. And I try and Google search it, and then all kinds of stuff comes up that's not what I'm actually looking for. And that's how I actually found out WebSleuth was active with respect to his case because it came up in one of my searches, and that's how I got involved with WebSleuth. That's yeah. just within the last five months. I mean, it sounds like maybe um, when you're when you're doing this and it's not in front of a computer, sometimes it, it can be hard to do and hard to navigate, which is just making things even more difficult for you when you're already going through all of this. Yeah, it's true. Is is there anyone that you think could help you? Is there any kind of um, help that you're seeking? Anyone out there that maybe hears this and uh, has some kind of I don't know qualifications or experience that you think might help you with your son's case that you could that you'd like to reach out to? Mainly his friends. I would I would love to hear more from more of his friends because I think that between them and myself we could piece together more about what happened the day before his murder or even the night of his murder. It's just because it's been over 10 years now, there's, I just don't have contact with a lot of his friends like I did whenever we were all hanging out together every now and then. And, uh, I just, I wish that I could restore not only my relationship with my children, but a relationship with all of his friends. Uh, I did bump into one of them, but he's busy with his life, and as much as he would like to help, I just don't think he has the time to help. And then the final person is the person that has been doing research on the case and is trying to get the, uh, the autopsy, and she's on WebSleuth, and she lives in the Houston area. And beyond those people... It would be great if I could find a detective that would be willing to work the case pro bono to try and help bring some closure because I don't have a lot of money that I can put into an investigation. But Patrick deserves more than he's been given so far. He deserves so much more. Yeah. Well, it, it, there's no doubt from the sounds of it that you're, the grief that you've gone through is just something that most of us will never know. And, uh, you know, I think the only way to unburden yourself of that is to have answers. And I hope somehow, some way, Rusty, that you do get those answers and can find out who did this to your son. I, I appreciate that, Mike. I really do. Because you're right. The closure would bring so much healing to everybody that was, that Patrick knew and loved. And he knew and loved so many different people that I never even knew about. People have posted on his memorial site that they say they remember him and they wish that they could talk to him and hear his voice again. And it's a wonderful thing that some people remember it and find it. Uh, his, In fact, his sister had just posted on it about a month and a half ago because she had another tragedy happen in her life with somebody else that she knew and loved that died in a car crash, I believe. And I, I usually, I know when somebody posts because I get an email from the site 
that wants me to approve the post. So that's how I, I know whenever people have posted. And if there was some way that I could uh, give the link directly, I would. I think I've done it on uh, Facebook a couple of times in a post that I made. But that's only because I was already on the site and making reference to it on Facebook. And I, the way I get back to the site is from going back to it from the emails that I get. Yeah. And it's, it's not easy when you're, especially if you're doing it from your phone, if you're like me, um, it's much easier if you have access to a computer trying to do stuff from, from the phone is, is not easy all the time. Um, but hopefully people out there will do the right thing and come forward if they, if they know something, if they have information, uh, about the case, if, if they knew your son, they'll, they'll come forward, do the right thing and be able to come forward and share that information. Any little thing might help, Yes. uh, any little clue. So, and if, if anyone out there listening is in the Houston area, especially, um, that knew Patrick or his friends or can have someone get in touch with, with Rusty, maybe that's, uh, something we can do to try and get that word out there and, and help you uh, get someone coming forward that might have some information. Anything that anybody can do would be awesome and amazing as far as I'm concerned, yeah. because the pain doesn't go away. It just becomes less obvious to you as the longer it goes. And then when I touch on something, it comes rushing back. And it does overwhelm me sometimes. Huh. I've been pretty overwhelmed during most of this interview. Uh, I, I know it hasn't been easy, and I definitely appreciate you taking the time to help us get to know the case better and what's going on and everything you've faced. And again, I'm, I'm hoping that you get some kind of justice. Thank you, Mike. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast called Mysterical. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hey, I'm Lynn, and this is my co-host, JP. Hey there, we're Mr. Reticle, and we love a good mystery. Oh, right, it's so <laughs> Each week, we come through a mystery and its theories and discuss some of our own. That's right. <laughs> we give original thoughts on mysteries around the world, large or small. Murder, mayhem, aliens, or the bizarre. Tune in every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts.